go ahead and open them to 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings. We are taking a, a one-week break from 1 Corinthians. Pastor Steve and his family are on a little vacation of sorts in Williamsburg. So we want to keep them in our, in our prayers. Second Kings chapter 22. We're going to be looking at the story of Josiah. Josiah. So I'm going to read uh, chapter 22, verse 1, all the way through chapter 23, verse 27. So it's a bit of a long passage, but uh, I think it's it's all important and, and good stuff. So 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedida, and the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he, that is Josiah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to the Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked of them, for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go! Inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, Behold, 
I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent all of the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing of the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk before the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that, that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priests and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city who were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he, that is Josiah, defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And the, uh, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. 
And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. He sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is a tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar, altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be, let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according to all he had done to Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you give us wisdom this morning. Give us insight. Would you give us understanding? as we not only hear your word and seek to understand it, but as we seek to apply to our hearts. Our Father, would you do that this morning by the power of your spirit? Would you take your word and apply it to our hearts? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, it was three years ago in 2017, I was teaching a class at Lancaster Bible College uh, that I teach every October uh, on science and uh, introduction to scientific disciplines. And since it was October of 2017, 
the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation uh, beginning in Germany, I just asked my class, uh, we were talking, and I, I said, who here's ever heard of Martin Luther? This was a class of about 15 or so. One hand went up. One hand went up. Had ever heard of Martin Luther? I was, I was actually a bit shocked by this and, and heartbroken that my class at a Bible college full of churched individuals, full of Christians, didn't know who Martin Luther was. And it, it, it became aware to me, and, and I think it's kind of been uh, be more becoming more aware, but, but uh, an, this country, especially, I think, we've forgotten the gains made in the, during the Protestant Reformation. We, we spent uh, time last year, a, a large chunk of time last year, two years ago at this point, going through church history. And there's a reason for that, right? It's important to understand history and specifically church history, right? What, what God has done in and through the church throughout uh, time, throughout 2,000 years since its establishment, We've forgotten what was gained during the Protestant Reformation. And, and it's not only the people that we've perhaps forgotten. It's not only the doctrinal distinctives, uh, why Martin Luther said, no, the doctrine of the Catholic Church is wrong. It's not, we've not only forgotten the doctrinal distinctives, but, but also, I think importantly, how doctrine dictates church practice and worship not just the doctrine but how doctrine dictates church practice and worship you see the reformers understood well and and, and they looked at the, the the roman church and they saw the inextricable link between roman wayward doctrine and roman wayward practice there's an inextricable link there and and, and as we fail to, to recognize that link, well, then it's not hard to see how things can go wrong. And, and, and I think our forgetting of, of the gains and the importance of the Protestant Reformation is evidenced in two very interesting ways currently in our, in our uh, church culture. One, uh, there's a kind of a mass return to Roman Catholicism by younger people. And there's a lot of reasons for that, and there's a lot of really good books on that. But there's kind of, uh, amongst kind of my age and younger, there is a, a lot of, of men and women who grew up in kind of normal non-denominational churches in our country who, who have returned or, or started attending and become part of the Roman Catholic Church. I think that's one evidence that we've forgotten why the Protestant Reformation happened. But, but two, interestingly, the liberalization of the modern church is, is another evidence that we've forgotten the gains made during the Protestant Reformation. The liberalization of the church, the modern church, the, 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 the kind of compromises that we've made to the liberalizing forces. I, I think it's interesting. Doctrine, doctrine has, has become subject to pragmatism. Right. The, the, one of the, the outgrowths of this is that doctrine, our, the doctrines of the church have become subject. That is, we, we kind of now wishy-washy our doctrine according to how we think church should just best be run. 
right? Rather than letting doctrine define how we do church, we let how we think we should do church define our doctrine for us. And I think uh, kind of one of the, the, the understandings that we have out of the Protestant Reformation is that, is that a, a reform isn't just a one-time thing. We need to always be reforming. The title of the sermon is Semper Reformanda, the Latin that means always reforming, right? It, if we just look back and say, oh yeah, look at all that happened 500 years ago and not take the time to look at where we are now and what's happening now and saying, how, how do we reform ourselves now? Well, then, then we've lost all that they fought for. And, in, and I, I think we see something interesting in our, uh, something similar in our passage this morning as we read through the account of Josiah. He's actually my favorite Bible character he's been ever since I was young. I think just because I liked the fact that he became king when he was eight years old and, you know, kind of ruled the whole nation when he was just a boy, uh, the age of my daughter almost. I mean, that I, I always was very drawn to that. But, but as I kind of grew and, and learned about who he is and what he did, I think my love for him as a, as a character in the Bible just grew even more. And so we're going to look at, at three things in this passage, I think. First, the extent of Israel's slide, the extent of Israel's slide. Secondly, the extent of Josiah's personal repentance. And thirdly, the extent of Josiah's reformation. So first, the extent of Israel's slide, and, and, and that's why I wanted to read all of that, especially chapter 23, where it just gets kind of long, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, right? Because it shows us just how far the nation of Israel had slid, okay? So, so just a little history. This is about 300 years or so after David was king, Okay. And, and at this time, the, the, uh, so David, Saul was the first king in Israel, then David, and then Solomon. And then after Solomon died, the kingdom split into Israel and Judah, Israel being the northern kingdom, Judah being the southern kingdom. By the, the, this time, Josiah's reign, the northern kingdom, Israel, had already been sacked by Assyria, Assyria taken captive. It was just the southern kingdom left, Judah. And, and the line of kings in Judah was really the true Davidic king line. And, and, and what we've seen and, and as we read this is just this slow decline in, in, what, in, in Israel. And, and we see this in a couple ways. First, we see that they lost the book of the law, right? It, it, it's, it's fascinating when you look in here, right? And see, see kind of the high priests and the secretary's response. When, when Josiah sends them in to say, clean out the temple and fix it up, Josiah's in the middle of a repair cleaning the temple, fixing it, right? And, and, and the high priest goes in and it just says he, I found the book of the law, right? This is verse eight in the house of the Lord. So the high priest at least knew what he found, right? But the, he says to the secretary, and then he sends the secretary back to Josiah and look what the secretary says. He's like, uh, in verse 10, the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. He's given me a book. I don't, I don't know that the secretary had, there's no indication that the secretary had any idea what this book was, or even that Josiah had any idea what this book really was. It had gotten lost. It was buried in the temple somewhere, 
No one knew where it was. And when the high priest found it, seemingly no one knew what it was. That's, that's an important kind of statement or look at what had happened in Israel. Remember, the, the Deuteronomy 6, that what's, what's known as the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a mantra that they were supposed to know. And they said, the, the word of the Lord, right, the book of the law shall be on your lips day and night. And, and the, Israel was supposed to have this memorized. But, but here, not only is the word of the Lord not on their lips, the, the word of the Lord isn't even found anywhere in the, in the nation until the high priest digs it up in the temple. The book of the law was, was just nowhere. It was not found. It, it reminds me, one of Sarah and I's favorite movies is The Book of Eli, if you've ever, if you've ever seen it. And, and I, I, I love it. It's a post, takes like kind of a post-apocalyptic uh, time in this country after a nuclear war, I think. And, and, and Denzel Washington's character is carrying around a Bible. And it is, and there, and, and he ends up becoming the enemy of, of the kind of this warlord dude. And, and, and no one knows what the Bible is. And, and, and another character comes along and travels with Denzel. And she's so fascinated because something, the, 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 this Bible was so rare and it was said to have so much power that it, it was worth so much. And yet no one knew what it was. It just reminded me of, of what we see here. The, the book of the law was so far foreign from anyone's mind. They had no idea what it was when they found it. A second indication of this, how far the slide was, was no Passover had been celebrated. Did you catch that? We see in verse 20 in chapter 23 that Josiah celebrated the first Passover in Israel since the time of the judges. If, if, you, look, if you turn over to, to the parallel account in the book of Second Chronicles, you see actually since Samuel. Samuel, who's the, the kind of first character introduced in the book of First Samuel was the last one to carry out the Passover in Israel. But none of the kings, not even our guy David, apparently carried out the Passover in Israel. That's a big deal. The Passover, right? This big feast that Israel was supposed to celebrate every year that was a, a vivid picture and reminder of God miraculously bringing them out of Egypt Right? Saving them, the picture of salvation, birthing them as a nation. That they hadn't celebrated that in four hundred years, at least, since the time of the judges. That is just again another picture of how far Israel had had slid. And, 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 you know, I, I think it's uh, interesting that, that even though there were still prophets in the land, and, and, and we see this, right, during, uh, you look through the minor prophets, our small group's been studying them, and, and these minor prophets, come, these prophets are just coming along again and again and again to just remind these kings, hey, the word of the Lord. There's still the word of the Lord coming through prophets throughout this 300-year slide, right? But it's interesting that without the book of the law and without the Passover, well, even the words of the prophets are are falling on deaf ears these the the law and the passover are are that vital i think and that's why god instituted them and and so then the, uh, how do those things bear itself out well then obviously what's the big thing we see in these chapters how, how the picture of how they slid well the just crazy amounts of idolatry 
Right? You see again and again Josiah going here and he's tearing down this altar to this God. And he's going over here and he's tearing down this altar to this God. And he goes over here. He tears down this altar. And oh, not only that, but he's, he's, burning, he's burning things and he's tearing it down and he's finding things and ripping them out and sacrificing priests, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Right? The, the, the idolatry, which began with King Solomon, right? we saw that. King Solomon, the son of, very son of David, the wisest man who has ever lived. All this idolatry began with him and was furthered by almost every other king throughout Israel's history. Very, very rarely do you see a good king coming along. And it then culminates in, in the life of Manasseh. So if you remember in, in the end of chapter 23, God still says, I will bring judgment because this is what I told Manasseh. Manasseh was Josiah's grandfather, the king of Judah. And his idolatry had gotten so bad, his rejection of the Lord had gotten so bad that, that the Lord finally said, that, that's it. No, no amount of repentance at this point is going gonna, is gonna to stave off the judgment that I'm br- going to bring. And so the idolatry had just gone crazy. But, but how did this happen? Right? These are kind of symptoms and things that we see. So, so how did this happen? How did this idolatry slide into idolatry happen? Well, again, it starts with Solomon. And, and if you look in the account of Solomon in the book of 1 Kings, you, you see, right, he started off acting in the ways of his father David. Right? He was instructed in the ways of, ways of his father Right, he when God comes to him and, and says, "Hey, ask of me anything that you want, and I'll give it to you." Solomon asks for wisdom. Right, Solomon asks for wisdom. What the best thing he could have asked for? Right, and he ruled wisely, and you see that right off the bat how that wisdom plays out in in, in his rule. And he became just extremely wealthy, one, probably if not the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest men who's ever lived. Right? And, and, and you see accounts of people coming from all over the known world at the time who, just to, to see this man, to see his wealth, to see his splendor, to hear of his wisdom, to see his judgments. Right? Uh, he, he became famous. He became wealthy. And he started acquiring horses, chariots. He started acquiring wives. Right, He had... 600 wives and or 300 wives and, not, and 600 concubines, right? All of those things, horses, chariots, and wives are things that God had commanded the kings of Israel never to accumulate. And yet Solomon, in all his wisdom, disobeyed the Lord and went off. And what does it say in, in, the, in the book of 1 Kings? That Solomon's wives distracted his heart or turned his heart away from the Lord. What happened with Solomon is uh, the narrative actually says, and he he didn't he became not wholly devoted to the Lord. So Solomon still recognized Yahweh. He still worshipped Yahweh, but it became a a, a, a God or Yahweh and right. I'm gonna. I, I, Solomon kind of started just accumulating or incorporating the, the gods of, of, the, of his wives into, into kind of Israel's worship. You see Solomon established uh, altars to, to three, of, three of the gods that, that belonged to his wives. He, he, he built them altars. Right? He said, I'm, I'm still going to worship Yahweh, but I'm just going to kind of incorporate into some of these other things here. Right? It's very possible that as, as people are coming from all over, 
right? Solomon would very easily say, yeah, you know, let's let's kind of make them feel comfortable and welcome and, and include some of what they do into what we do and, you know, add some of their worship to our worship. It's, it's probably still to Yahweh, but we can include some of them too, right? It starts really simply and subtly with, with Solomon, who was not wholly devoted to the Lord, W-H-O-L-L-Y, or completely devoted to the Lord. And then over the next 300 years, you see this slow degradation, a little change here, a little tweak here to Israel's worship, right? We don't do the Passover anymore, so we can't even tweak that because it's completely gone, right? 300 years later, you come and, and the worship in Israel, who they're worshiping, what they're worshiping, and how they're worshiping is completely unrecognizable. You, you can't recognize it from 300 years before when Solomon started. Just this subtle, slow degradation of making compromise after compromise after compromise. It reminds me of the game uh, I used to play when I was little, Whisper Down the Lane or, or Telephone, right? When you get a line of people, the person at the, the, the front whispers a phrase and it goes down and you get to the person at the end and it was nothing like what the first person said, right? We all know that game that kids play, right? Well, that's, that's what you see. That is human nature at its core, right? That as you go and compromises get made, and that's exactly what we see here, a slow degradation over the course of 3,000 years or three, 300 years. And, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of the first temptation in Genesis, right? Where, where the serpent came to Eve and, and said, well, did God really say, did God really say that, right? Satan's device, his primary temptation mode to God's people is to say, did God really say, did God really mean when he told you to worship this way that you really had to do it that way? Did God really, really mean, you know, when, when he said to have the Passover every year, that you had to do it every year? Why not just maybe once every seven years? Because he likes a Sabbath, right? He likes things to happen on seven. So maybe just do it every seven years. Maybe that would be okay. Did God really say? And that is Satan's primary device against the, the people of God. Did God really say? He gets you to question the very word of God and the authority of God's word and his commands to us. Seemingly harmless changes, perhaps, can take us places that God doesn't allow. And that's what we see here, to where it's not even recognizable 300 years later. So that's the extent of, of Israel's slide. Now let's look at the extent of Josiah's repentance. This is the, this is the scenario when Josiah steps onto the scene. Right? And, and we do get this picture, if you read Second Chronicles, that, that Josiah, even from a young age, was kind of acquainted with some of the things of the Lord. It's, it's very likely that, that his mom or, or, or someone kind of raising him in the palace uh, was, a, was a worshiper of Yahweh and, and, and did at least understand some things. Uh, because Josiah, from actually fairly early on, even from the eighth year of his reign, he started kind of taking down some of the idolatry. But the picture that we see here in Second Kings is, is that Josiah's personal repentance, his, his understanding of who he was and who the nation was before a holy and righteous God comes when he reads the word of the Lord. Right? We see that in chapter 22. That he, he hears the word of the Lord and what does he do? He tears his clothes. It's the first thing he does. Right? This, this sign of just 
utter shock. Utter, I, 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 woe is me, I'm undone for I've just read what I've just read. And, and not only does he tear his clothes in shock, but he says, I, I've got to know more. Right, I've got to know more. I, I want you guys to go and find a, this prophetess and, and ask her what the Lord, what more the Lord can tell me. Because this is what I read. Is there, is there any way out? God, God promises judgment. Is, is there any way out? Can, can we repent as a nation? And what can we do to appease the wrath of God? Right? Josiah, he's broken and he says, I, I want to know more. And so what we see here, I think, is two necessary elements of repentance. Two necessary elements of repentance. First, you see the inward, right? We see this of the inward of Josiah. We get his heart. How, do, how does it describe, as, as God is kind of speaking back to Josiah, how does, how does God describe it in verse 18? But to the king of Judah, say this, and then in verse 19, because your heart was penitent, Second Chronicles says tender, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself. So, so this inward, inward repentance looks like a penitent, tender, soft heart. Right? A, a brokenness, a sorrow over the sin of the nation. Right? That, that is a necessary element to true and proper repentance. When you are confronted with the word of the Lord, which tells us of his holiness and his righteousness, and then we recognize how far we've fallen from that as sinners, the first response of our heart should be a brokenness and a sorrow and a weeping over, their, over our sin. And that's, that is what characterizes Josiah here. To the point where God commends him for that and says, because this is your heart, because your heart was tender and penitent and sorrow and you wept when you heard my word. God says, because you heard me, I will hear you. And actually promises Josiah uh, a, a good and right uh, burial, right? I will bury you with your fathers and you will be gathered to the grave in peace. Is God's promise to him. So there's, so there's an inward brokenness. And, and not only a brokenness, but a humility. He says, because your heart was, was uh, tender or penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord. Right? That, that was also probably Solomon's problem and every, everyone's, every king's problem after that. was They didn't humble themselves. They thought they were king. And so I'm the king of the land. I get to do what I want. Right? Josiah said, no, 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 no. God is our king. I'm just kind of his under shepherd tasked to, to lead this nation to, to, to proper worship and to do the Passover, right? And my fathers before me have failed and failed and failed again. I, I can't. I must come humbly under the authority of Yahweh. So the, the inward repentance of, of Josiah we see here. But also we see an outward repentance, don't we? We see his repentance play outwardly. That he, he tore his clothes. He wept, right? A visible weeping. And not only that, but he changed, right? He said, we're not going to do things like we used to. Repentance means we're going we're gonna to go about face and we're going to do exactly the opposite of everything we've been doing, right? And so he, he takes down all, this, all the stuff and he institutes the Passover and he puts the word of the Lord in front of them, right? The, 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 the biggest outward sign of Josiah's personal repentance is the change that you see affected in his life. That 
But, but you need both of these things. You need inward and outward repentance. Right? If, if you have just an outward show, but there's no brokenness of heart, there's no real wrestling with sin and with God's righteousness, well, that doesn't mean anything because it's not real to your heart. But if there's a realness in your heart, but there's no change in your life, well, the New Testament, or the scriptures say again and again and again, that, that doesn't make sense, right? That a true heart change should bear itself out in how your life changes, right? Now, that doesn't mean you become instantly perfect, right? But, but as your heart is changed by the Holy Spirit, as it's a brokenness and as you mourn over sin and as you desire to do right before God, well, as the tree goes, so goes the fruit, right? Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know my children by their fruit. And so there's an outward change as well. The, both the inward and the outward go hand in hand. But how do we gain this heart? How do we gain this tender heart, right? How do we become like Josiah and how, how do we do this? Well, first it comes by hearing the word, right? That's was the kind of thing that God used. And that's the thing that we see again and again and again that God uses to break a heart of stone. It comes by hearing the word. That's what it did for Josiah. And, and that's, we, we've got to be hearing the word. We've got to be reading the word if we want a broken heart, right? But also, not only that, it, you, just hearing the word all day long doesn't get you anything without also the work of the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament really tell, shines light on the, the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't see that much in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we see that, it, that a, a dead heart, a, a heart of stone, can only be softened or broken by the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit to do the work. You can read the Bible all day long at someone. But if the Holy Spirit is not at work softening and breaking the heart, then, then the word is, is, uh, is not uh, changing them. The, the Holy Spirit and the word hand in hand. Again, this is one of the, the primary understandings of the Protestant Reformation, actually, that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God always work in tandem. The Spirit uses the Word, and, and the Word is only affected by the Spirit. Well, we also see what, what, what does Josiah do here again? Well, he goes to the Lord and seeks the Lord's face, right? If, if we want a tender heart, if we want a brokenness, like Josiah, we've got to go ask the Lord for brokenness and ask the Lord to change us, right? That's exactly what we, we've got to go to him in prayer. That's exactly what Josiah does. He hears God, the spirit affects change in his heart and he, he goes to the Lord and, and, and seeks the Lord's face. If we want to keep, have and keep a tender heart, we, we have to go to the Lord in prayer. We have to continually submit ourselves to him in prayer and in humility and we go to him. And then finally, if we want to keep a tender heart, what do we see? Well, we take advantage of what are called the means of grace. We utilize the means of grace, which for the Christian are where we feed on Christ. The Old Testament Passover, which was a means of grace to the, to the nations of Israel, where they were to remember very visibly, very tangibly what God had done for them. Right? We have those things in, the, in, in us as well, for us, that are established by Christ for his church to continually remind us, to continually cause us to feed off Christ. Right? Baptism, the Lord's Supper, coming to church and feeding on the word 
These are things that God has given us to do to keep our heart tender and soft before him. This is, this is the extent of Josiah's personal repentance. And this is what it looks like. Well, finally, what about the extent of Josiah's reformation? The extent of Josiah's reformation. We read a whole bunch. There's a whole lot there. I'm not going to go through it all. But I, I kind of want to highlight two main categories of things that he did. One, he tore down that which is false. Right? Josiah understood, well, the first thing I've got to do is tear down everything that's false. Right? There was no uh, kind of equivocation. There was no, yeah, maybe I don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? I hear all that, that all the time. Right? For Josiah, the, the, the level of slide and the level of just filth that was happening meant he had to just tear it all down. Right? And, 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 a, and a, when it gets that bad, that's the only thing you can do. Right? If you, and, and this is known in the sports world all the time. You can ask Mazdak about the Redskins and probably what the Redskins or the football team should do. But it, usually if you want to build your way back to success, it's not, oh, let me add a little piece here and maybe let me add a little piece. Usually, if you're the worst team in the league, the only way is to tear it all down and rebuild from the bottom up. Right? And that's exactly what we see Josiah doing. He tears down everything that's false. And it was pervasive. And, and, and his extent to which he tears it down is a little bit shocking. Right? He, did you catch that he, he dug up the bones of the dead priests who were sacrificing to false gods? He digs up their bones, burns it on the altars to those false gods, and then tears down the altar. He actually then he and and there was child sacrifices going on. I don't know if you caught that. He he actually sacrifices the priests who were doing the ch child sacrifices. He, I mean, it's this is a bloody reformation because Josiah said we've got to get rid of it. If there's a if there's even one false priest left in this nation, right? We haven't gotten rid of it. We haven't gotten rid of the cancer. We've got to get it all out. And, 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 and this is, if you read about the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, this is what they understood, right? And, and they did some crazy, they went into the church buildings and were, they were tossing out everything, crashing stained glass windows. And we'd say, oh, well, why are they doing that? It's because they understood they had to do what Josiah had to do, right? If it gets that bad, you've got to just, boom, burn it all down and start from the beginning. And so that's what Josiah did. One, he tore it down. That He tears down that which is false. But number two, he reestablishes that which is true. Right? You can't just leave it on fire. You've got you've to reestablish that which is true. And, and how did he do that? Well, he uh, reinstated the Passover. We saw that, right? He reinstated this means by which God was continually reminding the people of his, his salvation and his love and care for them. Right, but, but also, you see this in, in chapter 23, verse 24. He, it says, he sought to establish the words of the law that were written in the book. What does that mean? Well, it means Josiah said, hey, hey th this book says a lot of very specific things about how we're supposed to do things. We need to do that. He established the words that were written in the book. Right? He says, ultimately, the main point of Josiah is this. We need to allow God's word to regulate what we do 
and how we worship him. We need to allow God's word to regulate how we worship him and that which we do, right? As he was reading the book of the law, he probably read the account in Leviticus chapter 10 of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, right after the priesthood was established. This is one of my, this is, this is a crazy account. Right after the priesthood was established, they go in to the temple to offer a sacrifice. And it, and it just says they burned strange fire. I don't know exactly what that means, but they burned strange fire. And God struck them dead on the spot. Saying, hey, when, when I tell you how I want to be worshipped, I'm not joking. It's a serious thing. God wants to be worshipped in the way that he, well, he needs to be worshipped in the way that he, he wants to be worshipped. He's God. He has the authority to do that. The authority to, to dictate exactly how it is that his people relate to him or that anyone relates to him. As the creator, as holy and righteous and perfect God, right? Sinners can't stand before him. So he, he tells us how we do that. He tells us how sin has gotten rid of and how we can relate to him. If we want to worship him and come to him and worship, he tells us how we do that. He told, he told Israel that the first two priests besides Aaron got it wrong. And God said, look, he killed them as a very visible reminder that I will be worshipped how I will be worshipped. Josiah, I'm sure, read that and was probably cut to the quick because of it and said, wow, we, we, we've, we've got a lot of work to do. He put the word of the Lord back, back to the center. So what, what does this mean for us? We look at Josiah and what happened in Israel, and we look at even 500 years ago, and what does that mean for us? Well, I think well, first there's, a, and I've spent a lot of time talking about Israel in the Old Testament, and, and there's a common misunderstanding that, well, you know, thinking through God regulating worship, he did a lot of regulating in the Old Testament, right? Look at all this, and he regulated everything. But in the New Testament for us in the church, he doesn't really... He doesn't really give us many instructions. We have freedom to do things however we want. You know, that's actually a misunderstanding. He, he regulates our worship a lot in the New Testament. He tells, gives us a lot of instructions for how we do things. And we want to do things according to his word. This is called the regulative principle. Allowing the word to regulate how we worship. And, and the list is long of things of ways that the New Testament regulates our worship. We don't often don't think it's very many, but it is. When we gather together, what it is that we do and what it is that we don't do. And the, the New Testament tells us a lot of those things. Number, I mean, I'm just going to give you a list of just 10 things really quickly. Number one, gathering on the Lord's Day. The New Testament tells us to do that. Look at Matthew 18. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Preaching. When we come together the word is preached, Acts chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Prayer, when we gather together, we pray together, Acts chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2. We do the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to get there in a few weeks. How about singing? Does the Bible tell us anything about singing? Yes, it does. In, that singing is to be instructional. We do instructional singing as a church. See Ephesians chapter 5 or Colossians chapter 3. How about giving? Well, the Bible instructs us on how we give and how we don't give. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and many others, actually. We give together as a church. 
How about how we use spiritual gifts? How about that? Can we use those during corporate worship? Well, we're going to get there in a few weeks too. In, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, we're going to spend several weeks there. Paul tells us how we can use spiritual gifts during worship. Here's a good one. How about how we dress? Did you know the Bible actually gives us instructions or some instructions on how we dress during worship? See 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. And also 1 Timothy chapter 2. The Bible gives us instructions on how we dress as a church. How about public discipline and rebuke? Carrying out public church discipline during corporate worship, right? Paul gives us commands in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or if it's an elder, you do that. Uh, he tells us how to do that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. And finally, number 10, personal conduct and behavior, how we act when we gather together. That's, that's just a list of 10 of them. You could go on. But my, my point in, in, in giving you that list was to say this. God cares about how we come together in his name and worship him. And he gives us very specific instructions of how to do that. And our goal as elders is to follow those instructions to the T. Because if we don't, well, we're not being regulated then by the word. And that's what we want. We want to be Josiahs. We want to be like our forefathers, the Protestant reformers, who said, no, the word of God needs to dictate why it is we do what we do. Perhaps there's a, you know, a question or an objection in your mind. Say, well, well, Keith, you play guitar on a Sunday morning. The Bible doesn't say you can do that. So why do you do that? The Bible doesn't give you instructions to play guitar. Why do we, why do we let guitar or piano even or organ? Not in the Bible either. Why do we do that? It's a good question. And, and here's basically your answer. Remember the connection between doctrine and practice. Remember the connection between doctrine and practice that we talked about, right? So, so there is some freedom to, to worship God and, and do different things in worship insofar as it doesn't transgress biblical commands or prohibitions. So we can't do things that he said we can't do, and we have to do things he says we have to do. But, but, but deeper, you know— we can't do things that transgress the underlying doctrines of what he tells us as well. And, and, and here's what I mean. And let me get specific on, on the guitar issue, right? Just, just one example. And I want to say, first of all, there are some churches who, uh, good churches who say, yeah, the guitar is not in there. So we're going to sing acapella all the time. We don't, we don't even want to like broach that and get close to doing something God doesn't allow us to do. So we're not going to even have guitars. We're just going to sing acapella all the time. Right? So there are some churches who go to that extent. We're not one of them for the reasons I'm about to explain. But, but there are churches, good churches, who, who do that. But, but here's, what I, here's specifically what I mean, for example, with a guitar. Right? Well, it's allowable in that God doesn't say we can't have guitars or we can't have instruments. Right? There's, there's continuity between the Old and the New Testament. What you see in Old Testament worship is, uh, is just – the ability to make a joyful noise with kind of anything you've got. They had tambourines, they had dancing, right? Now there's some discontinuity as well between Old Testament worship. But, you know, instruments are, are okay in that. 
But here, here's the underlying doctrine portion. I can use guitar in so long, right, as it doesn't transgress an underlying doctrine as well. Well, what doctrines would it be? Well, well, one, the doctrine of, of God's glory, right? We gather together for God's glory, first and foremost, right? So if I'm up here rocking guitar solos all the time, am I doing that for God's glory or am I doing that for my glory in the setting of corporate worship? Now, you, you guys are good looking at me and, and, and saying, oh, wow, Keith Kaufman is an awesome or a crappy guitar player, right? Uh, whichever it may be, uh, right? I, the focus becomes on me then, right? And not on God. And so that's the underlying doctrine that I would be transgressing if I got up here and did guitar solos all the time, right? Is, is the glory becomes mine and not God's. And God says again and again and again, I will have my glory. And so... So there's one underlying doctrine that I might transgress, which is why we don't have long guitar solos up here. Why, why we keep things simple, because we want God to be glorified and not the musicians. But also, that, that instructional singing, that our singing is meant to instruct one another. Okay, and, and what can happen if I, if we, you know, say we're inside and we turn the lights down low and, you know, we kind of get the, the, the good feel good music going and we're singing and, and, and we repeat courses a hundred times and I'm going to write a book on this at some point but, but there's something called musical manipulation where I can use music to manipulate everyone's emotions and get you in, a, in some kind of fervor or frenzy not because of what you're singing or who you're singing about but because of the music it feels like a U2 concert instead of corporate worship Right and 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 even good churches and, and good good people that I know and love uh, have have kind of fallen into that, not understanding that the way that we do music can manufacture false emotions, rather than letting the glory of God and and the, the the words that we're singing and the truth that we're singing give Him the glory. And so that's that's one very real example of why we do what it is we do, why we like to keep it simple with just a guitar and and a piano. If, if we have a drum up here, I'm completely fine. We've I've asked Kevin a number of times if he'd be willing to play guitar or play uh, play drums or Steve on the, Steve has some tom toms. You know, it, we're, we're fine with that. Right. But ultimately, if we get to that point where we're saying it becomes about us and not about God and we we are using music and instrumentation to manipulate your emotions, well, then we've crossed the line. And that's what we don't want to do. And so we're completely happy just with a guitar and a piano as well. But God can bring other musicians along our way and we'll make those decisions when they come. There's another very, very real uh, kind of decision and, and situation that we're really thinking a lot through now. And I, I just want to talk a minute about it. And that's the use of technology. Live stream. What do we do about that? Right? The, obviously, the Bible doesn't talk about live streaming things or computers or the internet or anything like that. Right? So, so how, do we, how do we think through that? And why, why have we made this, some of the decisions that we make? And, and I want to say there's, there's room for disagreement here. Right. And, and that's OK. But 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 th this is how we think about this. Right. Is, is we say is is there commands or prohibitions that we're transgressing and and are there underlying doctrinal principles that kind of support or or uh, uphold that this, those decisions we're making. Right. So 
uh, technology is, is an instrument that can be used to help us bring glory to God, right? The fact that we have a sound system and a microphone, right? That you all can hear what I'm saying is a good thing. And there's no underlying doctrinal principle that that would transgress, right? But when, when we make the move to say, all right, we're going to have our corporate worship service and, and you can be in Texas and you can, you can get the feeling that you're gathering with us, right? That you could be part of our church. And I, I do want to say, and, and I want to say, first of all, this is not how we viewed live stream when we did it, right? Um, but we, we, we tried to be very clear about why it is we do. But there, there are churches in the Southern Baptist Convention who have said, we're going to have online campuses. We're going to have online church only forever, right? Because we can have people two states over who, who can now be part of our church, and can can worship with us, and 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 what we've what we've said and 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 discussed is well, when the Bible says we need to a church is a gathering, there, there's the the doctrinal principle of the local body of believers and the importance of gathering together. All of that stu- list of stuff is is corporate commands, and and if we if we make it so that someone fr- from two states over can can essentially try to be part of our church without getting involved in a local gathering. Well, then we are doing that person an injustice. We're doing the doctrine of the word of God, the doctrine of the church an injustice, right? So, so that's how we have to try to think through things. And, and just to kind of let you, uh, everyone in on, on how we thought about some of these things, right? Is, is are there underlying doctrinal principles that we would transgress or that, that run contrary to decisions that we might make. And, and we've seen this again and again and again in the church in America in the last hundred years, right? Where uh, I said at the beginning, pragmatism rules the day rather than allowing, letting the word of God rule the day. And what does the word of God proclaim to us, right? And, and oh, we just need to get people in the door. And, and then, and that's, well, you know, the, the, the church is a, a gathered body of believers. And so we, we want to be, be clear about what the gospel is, right? We want to proclaim openly and boldly the, the word of Christ and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? But we want to expound all of the scriptures and, and give all of this that the scriptures tell us to, to say and do. So in, in conclusion, you know, we always have to be in this process of reforming, of, of evaluating what it is that we do, why we do it, right? Are we, are we bringing glory to Christ alone or are we, are we glorifying ourselves or, or our own ingenuity somehow? The gospel of Jesus Christ and the purity of that message demands that we be regulated by his word and his word alone. We don't have the freedom to just do whatever we want because we think it feels good or we think people like it or we think the culture around us might find it acceptable. We do it because God's word tells us we do it. And that's important. Jesus and the atoning work that he accomplished on the cross is always at the center of what we do. Let's pray.